Back in 2006, Roseanne Cash wrote The Black Cadillac, a song about the loss of she'd experienced in the prior two years. She lost her mother, she lost her stepmother, June Carter, and of course her father, Johnny Cash. In an interview with NPR, she was asked something like, what did she find rewarding and what did she find challenging about entering the record studio to make this new album about loss? Roseanne responded, I love working with other musicians and I love when songs grow in me and send them out to the world. Are there parts you find challenging? Asked the interviewer. And that's when she answered, the challenging part is always an inside job. I don't remember if the interview, interviewer followed on that, but I think I know what Roseanne Cash meant when she said, the challenging part is always an inside job. I can imagine her saying to herself something like, yep, I've made yet another album with a bunch of depressing songs about losing someone. Or, can these songs be any more trite? Or, can't I think of anything original? You know, the kind of junk that goes through our heads. Saturdays, when I refamiliarize myself with what I wrote for the newsletter six weeks prior, I really get Roseanne Cash. The challenging part, indeed, is an inside job. My talk this morning is about what we do when we're stuck. Stuck. The girl watches a fast-paced soccer game. She'd like to play herself, but the voices of her parents and peers and teachers, the voices she carries in her head, remind her she's clumsy and slow. So she watches instead and never kicking a ball. Stuck, the high school boy stands on the upper floor of the new Silver Spring Street Mall and looks across through the windows of the ballet school and sees the young ballerinas spinning and leaping and dreams again, the dreams of his childhood of being a dancer himself. He feels his body lift with theirs. He imagines leaping as they do. But his parents had forbidden him to go when he was younger, and besides, ballet is expensive, and grades are the most important concern. And he dreams on. Stuck, she pours herself another drink. Too many drinks already, already, always too many drinks. But drinking transforms her loneliness and her feelings of inadequacy into a far distant memory. And drinking brings her peace. Willingly, she surrenders to that spell. Stuck, the nation contemplates its dismal state of affairs. And despite a great hope, once offered, the nation keeps walking down the same path of destruction. At some point in our life, for most of us anyway, there is a feeling that comes over us, a strange and kind of troubling condition where the movements of our life are arrested. They're held captive. It's as if we are spellbound. And spells were once the... Uh, common stuff of fairy tales and myths, but they're also the common stuff of everyday flesh and blood existence. All around us, perhaps even including us, walk people whose lives are halted, derailed, caught in one phase long past the time they should have moved on. 
It comes to us as a feeling first. You get frustrated. Maybe you excuse yourself with some comments like, I can't. I am too busy. Maybe sometime next week. And maybe you even feel a little down about it. Maybe even shading a little toward depression. You might begin to think there's something wrong with you because unlike everyone else whose life seems so carefree, you simply can't move on. In his book, Stuck, Why We Can't or Won't Move On, the author puts it this way. Sometimes you wake up, you look around and realize in surprise or dismay or shock, I am in a box. This box has a familiar shape, color, and texture. So familiar, in fact, and so almost comfortable that it was clearly built to order just for me. But it's not comfortable anymore. It chafes at my skin a bit, or digs into my gut, or cramps a limb. It clearly fit me once, but now I've outgrown it. Claustrophobia and panic rise as you ask, how long have I been in here? Our boxes were constructed based on how we previously saw ourselves and how a certain set of people in a certain place and time saw us or thought they did. These boxes are personas, our roles in families, communities, relationships, careers, and congregations. Outgrowing them is painful and it's scary to emerge. We're so accustomed to that size and shape, even if it's now uncomfortable, that we feel awkward in our own. We know its contours oh so well. It might be cutting off our circulation, but others expect to find us tucked up inside where we were when they last checked. Breaking out of a box, breaking the box, is an act of rebellion and of rejection, and we don't want to hurt those who helped us build it. We remain in the past for them. You know you're still tucked up in that box, but chafing when your elderly mother comes to visit, supposedly to see you accept a professional award, and all she can talk about the entire evening is how yellow just isn't your color. (laughs) Your father comes to see your new baby, and all he can talk about is himself. And when when is the game on? Your coworker inadvertently and with no ill intent says, hey, didn't you used to be a top manager at IBM? Why were you settling for this job? And right then, boom. Like some perverse time travel machine, there you are, right back in the box, stuck again. Back to a father who knew the stats of every member of the Yankees, but never really bothered to know much about you. Back to a company for which you gave your whole adult life to, but which had no problem abandoning you. Simply put, none of this is easy. All of us have hurtful memories and experiences in our past that still haunt us today and regularly plunk us right back in time. Haunted by the past, the past hooks us, sometimes for years and sometimes forever. Which brings me around to monkeys. You see, it seems that the park rangers in Africa have devised this incredibly imaginative way of catching monkeys. Tagging and administering medicine to these monkeys are routine tasks of the rangers. And in an effort to not harm them, 
with guns or darts as they capture them, the rangers have come up with something they call the banana method. Its simplicity, its simplicity is its brilliance. So you take a fairly large and heavy plexiglass, plexiglass box and you drill a small hole into the side of it, a hole just big enough for the monkey to squeeze its hand through. Inside the box, you place a banana, and inevitably, the monkey will see the banana through the plexiglass and come down from the tree to get it. By straightening out and squeezing its fingers together, the monkey can easily get its hand and grab hold of the banana. But once the monkey makes a fist with the banana in it, there is no way for it to pull its hand back out. In other words, it's stuck. That is, as long as it refuses to let go of the banana. <laughs> and for some reason, having to do with complex issues of adaptation or instinct or something, monkeys, virtually every single one of them, have a terrible time letting go. Freedom is right there for the taking, if only they let loose their grip. But you see, they don't. A part of them holds on for dear life. A part of them remains stuck. And it's important to remember that it's not their whole being stuck in the cage, only their fist, only one small part of them, but that one small part, because it's unable to let go, becomes a great weight to the monkey, holding its entire life hostage. I think that's how we sometimes can feel about ourselves. We find ourselves kind of sitting back, watching as our basic instincts and emotions guide us more than we guide them. Like that monkey, we sit and stare for hours, even years, at our fist wrapped so tightly around the memory of someone or something that hurt us. We sit there knowing that if we could just open that fist and let go, then we'd be free. We can be stuck when we're inactive, passive, apathetic, or lethargic. Or we can be stuck when we are active, when we are driven, frantic, and obsessed. We can be stuck when it seems we lack the resources necessary to take that first step. We can be frozen with a fear of failure or the fear of success. Can't make that one phone call. Can't throw out those files. Can't tell someone yes. Can't tell someone no. Can't make a commitment. Can't walk away from a commitment. It's awful when we're in that state, says Harvard Business School's Timothy Butler, but without it, we cannot grow, cannot change, and eventually, and eventually live more fully in a larger world. As psychologically painful as it is, feeling stuck is the first step to finding new opportunities in our careers and in our life. Isn't that weird? Timothy Butler has been studying psychological impasse as a social scientist, a psychotherapist, a change consultant, and head of the counseling department at Harvard, Harvard for 30 years. He has done years and years and years of longitudinal study on this. He says that when people to come to him for guidance, whether they know it or not, what they're looking for is meaning. He says that although it's usually first expressed as a failure or an internalized notion of inadequacy, it's really a request to change our way of thinking about ourselves and our place in the world. So Butler created this framework for anyone who has come to realize that something must change. 
in a relationship, in your working habits, or in an overly frantic and frustrating way of living. And so I offer his research to you because it rings true for me in my life. And I believe it will have value for you and for us as a congregation as we move forward. Butler has identified six phases in the process of getting unstuck. Though he says these phases don't always follow in some sort of linear fashion. He says that the first step is recognizing that we're stuck. And that's harder than you may think. We get so used to our habits of behavior, our habits of thinking and feeling, that some of us aren't even aware that we're stuck. We may not be growing or changing much, and we may not be challenged or excited or passionate about a thing, but our habits have indeed made us comfortable, like an old shoe. And yet, who hasn't had times when we felt that our relationship with somebody in our family, our partner, a friend, a job, a project, or a career could be so much better and inspiring and healthy, but it isn't going anywhere. We begin to see that something is missing. We begin to long for change. And so what most of us do is we first try to muscle through it. We throw our resources at it. We research. We devise more plans. We, enact, we do analysis, and we keep on pushing to will the problem to change and improve. Over and over, we call up the same repertoire we know to solve what no longer seems to be working. Now, the second step is the hardest. This is when we understand that whatever we've been throwing at the problem hasn't fixed it. We're still stuck. It's not a matter of staying up late, working harder, and getting in earlier. And here's where it hits us and can hit us hard because our emotions come into play. The crisis, all of a sudden, seems familiar. Suddenly, our old doubts emerge. You never really were all that good at that, and now it's really showing up. Those old feelings of anger and shame and self-doubt crowd back in. The inner critic that we carry around in our heads, that eternal naysayer, becomes louder and more powerful during this second stage of trying to get unstuck. It's as if the impasse were made to break down our, our defenses. Everything becomes exaggerated in our minds. We begin to globalize our problems, and we're often running down the path of regret for the roads not taken. In a visit a few years back, the Dalai Lama was shocked by the amount of self-loathing he found in the American people. I remember that our former leader, Don Montagna, used to say that we all have these inner critics, but we have to manage their volume. It's like turning down the volume on your radio. You need to keep turning it down. You need to keep turning down that volume of your inner critic. Butler says, first, we need to know who that inner critic is, whether it's Aunt Edna, or your dad, or your meanest teacher, or your meanest, or the meanest kid on the playground, and give that inner critic a name. In his words, Excuse me, in his words, we need to know that that inner voice is him speaking or her speaking or them speaking, and that what they have to say is inaccurate, distorted, simplistic, amoral, repetitive, and boring. I'm not pretty. I should have gone to law school. I should have married someone different. Anybody ever heard those words? 
And in the book Focusing-Oriented Psychotherapy, Eugene Gendland offers five strategies to use after you name that inner critic. He follows on to Butler's work. He says, this is what you do with your inner critic. First, you disrespect him. You notice how unreasonable, negative, and repetitive he is. Second, you remember not to believe that message. Third, since the inner critic usually attacks just about when we're about to go forward towards something, just as we're about to take that next step, go back in your mind to what was happening just before your inner critic spoke. Go back, he says, and stare down the inner critic as you move forward. Fourth, wave the inner critic off. Say goodbye calmly. Yes, yes, I've heard that before, and I'm not listening. Fifth, get some distance from it and find the humor in it so that when that inner critic starts talking in your head, you can laugh at it as absurd. So identifying when we're stuck, then learning how to manage your inner critic are the first two phases. Phase three is when we hit bottom. Our defenses are down. It's impossible to deny that we're stuck in the mud. We realize that if we continue to do what we're doing, it will just mean more pain. In phase four, we become more focused, listening better, and open to new information. Our imagination opens up. We begin to see new relationships between ideas we'd never even noticed before. We're forced to keep going deeper, past our more analytical way of understanding our problem-solving tendencies to an appreciation of metaphor in underlying themes. And this is when we start to get glimpses of a new future. We take stock of our experience and begin to notice what counts and what doesn't. Phase five takes a little while. We begin to notice patterns about what we love, about what we value, about what people we tend to enjoy and what people we tend not to enjoy, where we find meaning, what kinds of environments are more nurturing or rewarding. And as we get more familiar with all of this, we get clearer about who we are and what we need. But of course, all this introspection, and some would say navel-gazing, means nothing unless we move to the sixth phase and we take action. We buy those art supplies and set up the art studio in our home. We go back to school. We begin to work on a book. We make a commitment to learn about home finances. We end a relationship. We schedule that meeting we've been meaning to have for two years. And many of us, for many of us, this is the hardest part. It means giving up certainty, what we know, for vulnerability. Knowing what the action needs to be and actually doing it is what seals the deal and we move forward. So the six phases again are arrival of a crisis, deepening the crisis, letting go of the current mental model, recognizing what you love and the deep patterns of your personality and taking action for meaningful change. What it comes down to, in my mind, is that sense of somehow limiting your potential, your growth, your possibility, your full unfolding, and becoming unstuck, turning that around, all that we are about as ethical culturists. And then wrote Aeneas Nin, and then the day came when the risk to remain tight in a bud was more painful than the risk to bloom. 
In order to face our fear, we need to risk blooming. We need to know that our fear will burn away and that the rose will indeed open. Getting unstuck requires boldness. If we think of boldness as being the courage to take a risk, then we are all probably kind of uneven in that skill. We're too cautious in some areas, and in others we are willing to take risks. Some of us are cautious when it comes to personal safety. Some of us are cautious about looking foolish. Some of us are cautious about incurring someone's anger. Some of us are cautious about being wrong or making a mistake. And some of us are cautious about engaging our emotions. I remember my piano teacher said to me at almost every lesson, if you're going to make a mistake, make a big one. He meant that I was too timid in my playing, that when I became unsure of myself, my playing sounded kind of soft and mushy, and you couldn't really tell if I was missing the note or not. He meant that if I were bold in my playing, the good notes would sound good and the bad ones would be loud and bold enough that we could correct them. He meant that I would have a lot more fun and be a much better piano player if I wasn't so afraid of making mistakes. In looking at the national scene, I wish that the people I voted for last time had been bolder, less fearful, had really gone for the change I can believe in, even if they were not entirely successful. Looking back in my own life, almost all the best things have come about from overcoming caution and fear or inertia and taking the opportunity to do something that took a little or a lot of daring, and it isn't easy. In each case, my first inner impulse was to find a reason why I couldn't do it. But I was, I was too busy. I wasn't qualified. I was too uncomfortable with strangers. Whatever. But I was smart enough to make a bolder choice, and each experience turned into a transformative one for me. And these experiences taught me to be bolder in accepting unlikely invitations that come my way. We can always come up with good, rational reasons to stay safe in our cocoons, but most of the good things and all the extraordinary things that have happened to me have happened when I was bold enough to leave my comfort zone and to dig deep to discover what I loved and what I was looking for. Now, some opportunities I accepted were duds, but still, even though I think I may have been above average in making bold choices, I regret some of the bold choices I didn't make far more than the bold choices I made that didn't turn out well. I would have liked to have been the little girl who didn't take an hour to jump into deep water, who played the piano without worrying about wrong notes. I would have liked to have been the grown-up who, learning a new language, isn't afraid to sound foolish using the wrong words and the wrong tenses and saying she is pregnant when she's trying to say she's embarrassed, (laughs) or asking for tabby cats when she is trying to get oatmeal. That is not my natural tendency. I have to push myself, but when I do, I'm usually glad that I did. When we find ourselves sitting there like that confused monkey, stuck with our fists so tightly clenched, wanting so desperately to let go but not knowing how, we've got to remind ourselves to look up and out and around. We've got to tell ourselves to stop looking at and thinking about what you have in your fist. Instead, Start paying attention to all the things that that intractable grip of yours is preventing you from touching, from holding, from caressing, 
from bringing to life. Start thinking about the fact that you have only 10 or 20 or 30 more years of your life left and how not a single one of them is worth, worth wasting. We never fully escape the stuck places. We are human after all. And even with lots of presence of mind, there are people in situations that just unravel us. But with practice, gentle, compassionate, warm, and friendly practice, we can become more intimate with the feeling of being hooked. We can recognize when we're stuck more frequently as it's happening, breathe into it, and sometimes, sometimes stay present enough to go through its developmental phases instead of being swept up into our habitual reactions. That incremental growing awareness can, over time, transform us, helping us to grow into fuller, richer, more generous, and peaceful lives. It can also make us more humble and compassionate people. We get to know how hard this work is, and we learn to cut each other more slack, much more slack. It's awful when we're stuck, said Timothy Butler, but without it, we cannot grow, change, and eventually live more fully in a larger world. The process is slow, but worth the effort, life-changing, offering us a path to freedom, satisfaction, and meaning. <laughs>